Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Reverend Gabriel Salguero about the Latinx vote in this election season. Reverend Dr. Gabriel Salguero is the president and founder of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, organization that is just, I think, changing things in the church and in the country, and a pastor with his wife, the Reverend Jeanette Salguero, who's a wonderful, what a couple of co-pastors these two are, of the gathering place, the gathering place in Orlando, Florida. So we've been friends for a long time, and I'm blessed to have Gabe with us for this conversation. So Gabe, welcome, but let me start with the question, just how is your spirit these days, Gabe, with everything going on? How's your spirit? Well, first, thanks, Jim, for having me on. I, I'm recollecting I met you when I was 27 years young, uh, about 20 years ago. I was a seminary student and at a gathering of Christian churches together to talk about faith and moral leadership in the public sphere. And so I'm thankful for our long uh, friendship. In terms of how I'm feeling, you know, I, I'm... I am uh, a hopeless optimistic. I am, to quote the prophet Zephaniah, says that we are all prisoners of hope. So I'm a prisoner of hope, but I'm also not captive to a utopic vision. I think we have some very real challenges of COVID-19, of uh, economic recession, both of those disproportionately impacting Latinos, Latinas, African-Americans, and Native Americans. And of course, the, the heightened racial tensions um, that need to have been long uh, overdue to be addressed. And so those things have me uh, deeply prayerful uh, for our nation and for our people. As you know, there's been a lot of news about both presidential candidates reaching out to Latinx voters in Florida. The Hispanic vote has become central in the conversation about this upcoming election. Can you comment on this, and what is your take on where the Latinx evangelical vote is going, and why? Well, I, I think that both parties uh, understand which, wind the wind, which way the wind is blowing, and I think the demographic boom of Hispanics or Latino Latinas is has not gone unnoticed, and so both parties have reached out to. Hispanic leaders and Hispanic voters, um, and, and this is important. I noticed that in both conventions, Hispanics had a prominent speaking role uh, in both conventions. And I think what, what they are noticing is that now Hispanics have become the largest minority group in the United States and in quintessential swing votes like Florida and Ohio and Pennsylvania, they could be determinative for the next election. And so I think that both parties have um, become aware of that. I, I think it's taken some time. You and I have spoken about this for years, but I think finally it's seeped into the public and political consciousness. 
this month alone, Jim, I've done about 30 interviews about Latinos and Latinx evangelical voters, Latino, Latina voters. And, and so that, that, that tells me something. The, in terms of Latino evangelicals, Jim, you know that we are the quintessential swing voter. George W. Bush won the Latino evangelical vote twice, and Barack Obama won the Latino evangelical vote both times he ran. But both of them won by a slim majority, 48-46 with a group voting independent, 44-45, 44-47, something like that. And so the reality is that among all Latinos and Latinas, the evangelicals are usually the, the ones with the most independent streak. You actually said that on a Orlando news outlet, one of those many interviews. You said this, I would say that the Hispanic evangelical community is the quintessential swing voter. And here's why. About 40% of us are registered independent or non-party affiliated. And we make up our mind almost always near the end of the elections. You go on to say, do not underestimate the influence that faith voters have in the Latino, Latina community. Say more about this. And, and what are you noticing within your community as we move through this election season up to election day very soon? I think that one of the things that I, I want to underscore is that faith is central to Hispanic voters. It's not an addendum. It's not a footnote. And it's not just personal faith, but it's it's how faith informs public policy, how faith informs family, how faith informs education. And so oftentimes people try to extract faith from a constituency. But in the Latino Latina community, faith is deeply formative. Uh, they are deeply rooted, whether they're Latino Catholics or Latino evangelicals or Latino mainline Protestants or Latino Jews or Muslims. Uh, it's still a, a strong determinative factor for the moral formation and the policy priorities of Hispanic in, Amer in America. The second thing I would say is Latinos are not a monolith. We're very heterogeneous. And, and I think that both parties understand that. So think about this, Jim. Cubans and Venezuelans in Florida, particularly in South Florida, like Miami and Hialeah, who, who have a historical relationship with, with Castro's Cuba and Chavez's Venezuela, they hear politics in a different frequency than, let's say, Puerto Ricans who came who, as climate change refugees after Hurricane Irene and Hurricane Maria, and or Mexican-Americans who came through the Rio Grande or the El Paso frontier, or Hondurans fleeing uh, persecution from, from these international gangs, La, La MS-13, MS or Salvadorians and Guatemalans and other Central Americans in Virginia and in Maryland and in the D.C. area who have benefited from TPS, uh, Temporary Protection Status for Refugees and Immigrants, or people like me, U.S.-born Hispanic evangelicals. I'm a Jersey Rican who have lived within the United States and have seen uh, how Hispanics have historically been treated in issues of criminal justice and education and immigration and DACA. And so this, this motley crew of Hispanicity or Latinidad really makes us difficult to, 
to pigeonhole on how we're going to vote because Cubans in in Miami and Hialeah are not the same as Puerto Ricans in Orlando or Allentown, Pennsylvania or Philadelphia or New York City or Mexicans in in LA or Mexican Americans in Texas or Salvadorians in in Maryland uh, and Virginia. You just laid that out more clearly than anybody I've heard do it before. Uh, unpack that a bit. What are those differences? What does that mean, given that whole spectrum of people? Uh, what Unpack that for us. What does that mean in terms of an election coming up like this one? Yeah, I think that that is the precise question. And, and I've been telling uh, pundits and, and uh, religion reporters that Latino, Latina evangelicals, Hispanic evangelicals, are not one issue voters, A. And B, their, prior, their voting priorities may be different based on their geography or their nation of origin or their historical experience with the United States. And so what that means is that when parties reach out to the Hispanic evangelical voter, they need to dig deeper and ask, okay, this Hispanic evangelical voter, this Cuban uh, American, for first generation, second generation, because they vote differently. First generation Cubans, this Puerto Rican, U.S. born Puerto Rican or Puerto Rican who came after Hurricane Maria, this Mexican American, fifth generation Mexican American or recent immigrant arrival. And so that textured and nuanced look at the Hispanic vote is what people often miss and they try to present one message. And so what I tell people is that Latinos and Latinas are not one issue voters. On top of that, evangelicals, we're evangelicals. And so we have a whole, hist a whole list of priorities around social concerns, around religious liberty, around life, uh, around, around uh, gun control, around healthcare that are also important to us. And so what, People need to see when they ask me, you know, Gabe, how do I approach the Latino? I say, don't approach them as a monolith and remember that they're geographic and a nation of origin difference in voting priorities. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly, as you just eloquently stated, uh, Latino, Latina, Hispanic voters are not one issue voters, but there is one issue that really impacts the community deeply. And one of the things that you, you and I have done before is we were very active, still are, in immigration. I remember we had a rally in a church about to go up to Capitol Hill, and you and I were both there, and you, you were preaching to this crowd, and you preached from Matthew 25, uh, the scripture that we all know so well, where Jesus says, uh, as you welcome the stranger, and the word for stranger there, it means immigrant, refugee, you welcome me. And we were, you'd preached about how we find Jesus uh, literally in that text among those who are immigrants and refugees. The place was full of immigrants in that service. And we went to Capitol Hill to, to really advocate with both, if you recall, Democrats and Republicans for comprehensive immigration reform. And I remember you, as you were sending us out, you, you, you said, Let's take Jesus to Capitol Hill. <laughs> Let's take Jesus to Capitol Hill. So that's one issue that really touches in the lives of all the people you were just telling us about. So 
not one issue voters, but that issue of immigration is so cr critical. In an interview in Christianity Today, you said, Scripture teaches us to balance respect for the rule of law with advocacy for more humane and just laws that defend the widow, the orphan, and stranger. As evangelicals, we can do both. It's not an either-or proposition. What have you seen where American evangelicalism, if you want to say, gets it right on immigration? And where do we miss the mark on immigration as a biblical issue? Look, Jim, I, uh, we've done our share of walking on Capitol Hill around issues of immigration. And I've told you privately, and I've said publicly, the frustration of, of Hispanic evangelicals on the lack of action, the lack of response to immigration reform. On top of that, most recently, xenophobic rhetoric against Hispanic immigrants and Hispanics in general has really, really been off-putting. And so I think that evangelicals in general, whether they're Hispanic, African-American, white, we have often approached immigration from a partisan lens rather than a gospel lens. You're right to quote Matthew 25. Matthew 25 clearly lays out some principles. In addition to that, there's over 90 verses in the Old Testament that talk about welcoming the stranger. Hebrews 13 talks about we should welcome them because many of us have entertained angels unaware. And so if we were much more gospel-centered in our approach to immigration, I think we would resolve this. And the, la the other thing is, if I'm going to be really honest, Jim, is there's been a lack of courage to act on this. Two-thirds of Americans for a long time have wanted immigration reform. But there's been a real lack of courage and boldness to take this on. And, and so for me, that has been deeply dissatisfying, to put it mildly, discouraging to, to be more direct in that, hey, everybody knows that we can get to yes on this, but why aren't we doing it? And recently, within the last several years, it seems we're moving further away from immigration reform. The, the administration sued uh, against DACA all the way to the Supreme Court. Fortunately, the Supreme Court favor, uh ruled in favor of DACA. There's been uh, the limitations on legal immigration, on asylum seekers and refugees fleeing political and religious persecution. And so I'm asking myself is what is really shaping the national consciousness on issues of immigration, refugees, and asylum seekers? And now I'm talking to my evangelical brothers and sisters and, and, and people of faith and people of goodwill. What is shaping our view on immigration policy? And for evangelicals, is it the gospel is or partisan politics? And, and, and I think that has really been my frustration because overwhelmingly we know what we need to, to, to enact a common sense, humane immigration form. And let me just add this, Jim. I have wept, and you know we've had our share of conversations. This thing with the separation of children from their parents, it's, in, it's unconscionable. It, it breaks Jesus' heart that we can't find over 500, we can't reconnect over 500 children with their parents, we can't find their parents. What does this say about us as a nation? 
I mean, we we who are evangelicals who say and have said for decades we're the we're evangelicals are our family people. We fold on family values. Well, if family values is a political priority, maybe we should not separate children from their parents as a policy. And and so that is, if I'm being honest, that has been the most lamentable thing I have seen in the last couple of weeks that have literally had me and Jeanette weep. There were powerful voices from particularly evangelical women and even evangelical white women during that terrible time of kids being separated and put into cages. And I remember one of them said, uh, uh, life, we are pro-life, but life is an issue for us at the border as well as in the womb. Life is an issue for us at the border as well as in the womb. Uh, respond to, to that. That was a deep feeling by evangelical women uh, who were watching this and they were connecting it deeply with their faith and they're being pro-life indeed. And I, I would say they're right. Look, I think on the in the immigration front, the most powerful voices have been young people, the dreamers, and women. Uh, as you know, our coalition led a visit to the border, to El Paso and Tornillo, to visit the sites where some of these children were being held. And the truth is that the evangelical women were leading the way. Latina, you know, Jeanette, she, she has a passion for this, but also white, Joanne Lyon, um, and, uh, and so many other women uh, in the Latina, Alexa Sabatierra, even from the Sojourners family, uh, Sandy Ovalle, and so many other people uh, lent their voice to this. Because the truth is, you no one can see a child separated from his or her mother or father and not be broken. I remember some years ago, I wrote a uh, a piece for Time Magazine together with Richard Stern, who was then president of, of World Vision. And we said, look, these children are created in the image of likeness of God. And these family separations, they're, they're a moral affront. And, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15 years down the line, history will not remember kindly both the policy and the silence of some people who stood by and said nothing. So as you have tried to say so passionately on this issue about how we should and can come together uh, biblically and even policy-wise, how we, what prevents us from coming together across all kinds of lines on an issue like this? What prevents that from happening? Jim, idolatry, political idolatry, that we are more committed to, to a party than we are to gospel values, that we are more committed to winning than being a faithful witness. Uh, that's one. I think the second thing is fear. Um, some years ago, uh, Geraldo Rivera, of all people, wrote a book called Hispanic and talked about, and it, it, he hyphenated the word his and the word panic, that there's a kind of fear of immigrants 
not just Latino, Latina immigrants, but all types of immigrants. And so some of that fear of the unknown is, is causes us to be to to proceed with trepidation. And I'm here to say is we have nothing to fear that we are all brothers and sisters, that these children and these families, they worship with us on Sunday. They go to our schools. They shop in our grocery stores. They're our neighbors. They help us produce the food that we bring to our kitchen tables. And so it either kind of partisan and political expediency on the one end and fear of, of what will our nation become as, as, as the demographics change as we become an increasingly plural, racially plural, and ethnically and culturally plural nation. The truth is, John F. Kennedy wrote some years ago that we're a nation of immigrants, but we're not just immigrants. We're also, uh, and that's European immigrants, that's Asian immigrants, Latino immigrants, but we're also the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of of African-American slaves. We're also the children of Native Americans people. We've always been a diverse uh, mosaic in the United States. And the truth is we have a mixed legacy. There are times when we're like, yes, this is good. It helps our economy. And there are other times when we're like, this is a threat. And we have to move beyond that fear to a place of hope and what Dr. King called beloved community. That question of fear is so central, Gabe, uh, making people afraid of immigrants in particular, the other, always making people afraid. And, and I can't help but but remember when when Donald Trump came down the escalator in his Trump building to announce his his candidacy for the presidency, uh, he really focused on on immigrants and fear of immigrants and saying some very ugly things about immigrants and Mexicans and 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 that rhetoric of fear continued into. Uh, threats of caravans coming to this country from the south, full of uh, drug cartels and and rapists and criminals and even people with leprosy, that disease. Uh, that fear has been so central to uh, the beginning of his campaign and his rhetoric ever since. And 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 uh, Jesus says, you know, uh, don't be afraid eight different times in the New Testament. Uh, but it's like the president saying, be afraid all the time, be afraid all the time of immigrants and re refugees. How do we deal with such stark, overt language of fear and, and then leading to, to hate even toward uh, the people that Jesus uh, tells us to welcome as we would welcome him? I, that's that fear rhetoric that you raised has been so powerful in this administration. The first thing is, I think that as gospel people, we we point people back to drink deeply from our wells, and and which is the gospel. But in every faith tradition, fear it should not be a motivating factor for how we interact with each other and how we vote, but rather love and hope. I'm reminded of the text in Exodus chapter one, where the children of Israel were multiplying in the land of Goshen. The, the, the grandchildren of Jacob and Joseph and Sarah. And it says there that Pharaoh said, we need to be careful because they're multiplying and they may be more numerous than us. And, and so that was the language of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter one. And, and, and oftentimes what happens is when there's a demographic boom, 
if there's not good moral leadership that tells people, as Christians, we are not fear-based, we're hope-based and love-based. The, the, a form of do not fear or fear not, some form of it appears over 360 times in Scripture because God knows that we have a propensity to fear. And instead of having kind of fear-based policies, what we should have is love and justice-based policies that call us to the higher angels of our character, as, as, as President Lincoln said, to form a more perfect union. And anytime we do fear, it, it limits us from seeing the other person created in the image of and likeness of God. So if we fear Asian immigrants, Latino immigrants, if we fear African-Americans, if we fear people because of the color of their skin or, or the money they make or don't make, it leads to this kind of venomous discourse and regrettably at its worst leads to violence against people of color and immigrant communities. And the truth is what we need, pastors, politicians, journalists, is we need to have a moral leadership and a spiritual leadership that combats fear with genuine love and hope. Absent that, our public discourse is going to continue to deteriorate in ways that future generations will deeply lament. Well, fear has been such a powerful piece of rhetoric in this uh, administration and this campaign. The other issue is race. The other issue is, along with fear, it's it's race. And um, uh, you were one of the preachers for a series, a number of us did, about saying that racism uh, is an essential religious issue in this election. There are other religious issues that people point to as being on that list, but we're saying that racism, because of what you said about the image of God, made in God's image and likeness, so racism is an issue for us about the image of God, about throwing away Imago Dei. Uh, so, so racism is a fundamental religious, biblical gospel issue for us in, uh, in this discourse. And, and as a leader of a church that focuses on racial reconciliation, which you have your whole life in New York and now in, in uh, Florida, uh, what did you make of the moment in the final presidential debate when Donald Trump claimed uh, that he was the least racist person in the room? Look, I think that the reality is Jesus taught us how to judge people. And Jesus says, you shall know them by their fruit. By, your, by their fruit, you shall know them. And so what I tell people is when you go to the voting booth, whatever candidate, not just at the highest level, but local level, state level, you know, city council. Research the policies that they have endorsed. Research their speeches. Do, do the, the, the deep work of analyzing the postures and the policies that these candidates endorse. You know that uh, Macbeth has a great line that says, Methinks the lady doth protest too much. Oftentimes, when we have to work overtime to clarify an image or perception of us, it is really the case that that is the perception we have given off. And so, you know, I was troubled. I was troubled when I heard the phrase, 
you know, stand by. I, I don't know what stand by means, but I, I, it is an ominous phrase for me when you tell uh, extremist groups to stand by. <laughs> I, I think that we are praying for, as you know, Jim, for free, fair, and safe elections that every single person, no matter how he or she votes, that they feel safe, that it's free, and that everybody, everyone's vote is counted. And I think that is, is, the, is the very core of our democracy, that they are free, fair, and safe elections, free from racism, free from, from prejudice, free from disenfranchisement. And so for me, we need to, we, pastors and faith leaders, need to be to have a clarion call that in our democracy, we value the voice of every single person, independent of their race, independent of their culture, independent of their generation, even independent of their, of their partisan identification. We need free, fair, and safe. And if we have extremists who are contributing to anti-racist tropes and xenophobic tropes, we need to clearly and unequivocally denounce that. And very practically, it's been recently reported that Latina, Latino voters in Florida, Texas, and Arizona have been the targets of misinformation regarding the election. Is this something you have seen before? Have you noticed the Latino, Latina community responding to that, to that targeting with uh, misinformation? Look, I th I, that is a deep concern for me, that there is targeting, and I don't know the sources of, of misinformation, of conspiracy theories in Spanish or in English to Latino English-speaking communities. Jesus taught us in John 8, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so the job of, of faith leaders and moral leaders and, and, and responsible politicians is to not traffic in untruths, half-truths, or conspiracy theories. And so I, I have to say, I am concerned. I actually did a, a whole podcast and radio interview with some Latino voters on digging deeper, especially on, on social media, where much of this misinformation and conspiracy theories is trafficked, and not to hit hit share without examining to, to dig deeper. And, and I think it is a genuine, I imagine that it's not just happening among Hispanics, Latinos, Latinas, uh, but it is, it is deeply concerning and we need to, to, to be clear eyed about this, these attempts to misinform or manipulate the Hispanic electorate. Final question. Um, you interviewed uh, with Mother Jones, and you spoke about the members of your church. And you said this, I think they want truth. I think they want justice. I think they want conviction. They want to know what the gospel has to say about their everyday life and policies that impact their everyday life. And they want it without political idolatry or partisan idolatry because we live in a tragically unnuanced political landscape. Given that, that's pretty clear. What kind of conversations are you having in your church, in the Latino, Latina community, in the country uh, about a politics, a situation, an election that has become so increasingly polarized 
on political lines? Jim, that is a great question. And the first thing I tell people is vote. Vote, vote, vote. Vote early, vote by mail, uh, vote in person. However you can vote, vote. The second thing is I tell them, engage in public discourse civilly. Do not dehumanize. Do not use rhetoric that dehumanizes the image of God in other people, whether you agree or disagree with them. Do it civilly. The third thing I say is do it with conviction. Civility is not the absence of conviction, right? Centrism is not a Christian virtue. Truth and civility and courage are Christian virtues. And so I tell them, hey, vote, do it with conviction, and do it civilly. Do not allow the public discourse to, to so deteriorate that it leads to dehumanizing rhetoric or worse, violence. And the last thing I tell them is be courageous. Be courageous. God told Joshua, have I not told you to be strong and of good courage? And courage is in high demand and low supply. So get out there. Get out the vote. Vote. But do it in a way that reflects Christ well. I think that call to courage reminds me of what I'm seeing. We're seeing gave around the country. Uh, even in, in places where governors are trying to suppress early voting by limiting polling places, you see voters standing up in long lines, waiting in long lines, record turnouts for early voting. It's when I first saw those pictures, it reminded me of the of the uh, first free election in South Africa, uh, which I was blessed to be a, a part of. And, and those voters, uh, in spite of voter suppression, despite the threats of intimidation that you mentioned, the standby and all the rest, they're voting anyway, and they're determined, and they're standing up. And to me, they have become Gabe the sermon. They have become the sermon in this election season, that courage, that determination. We're not going back. We're not going to be turned around. Uh, that's that's a sermon, and, and a lot of us as clergy are uh, responding to an altar call from that sermon that they're standing up. So we need to show up <laughs> at these polling places as, as chaplains, as, as clergy. We have this Lawyers and Callers program to put clerics, clergy with lawyers to protect the votes at polling places in, in states around the country. So I'm seeing a sermon rising up, and then I'm seeing an altar call where clergy are coming forward as chaplains to protect those votes, particularly voters of color who are being targeted. So this really is, a, as you say, well, a time for courage, and I'm hoping we see that courage in the uh, days we have left before this election day. I'm with you 100%. I had a seminary professor who once said, if you have a gospel, preach it. Given where we are um, in this country, uh, as you know, for a number of what I hear from, from Black parents, from Hispanic leaders, people of color, um, this is feels like a life and death election. Uh, I don't hear that from white voters on either side of the partisan lines, but a life and death election about the future of their children. Um, and so given this knife edge that we're on in the anxiety and fear and, 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 uh, and the use of race, the use of racism in this election campaign, as a reverend, <laughs> Would you close us 
together today in a word of prayer. Thanks, Jim, and thanks for the opportunity. Let's pray. God, I ask you for the healing of this nation, and I ask you to give us wisdom and to give us courage for the living of these days. God, from California to New York, from Chicago to El Paso, would you move us? Would you mobilize us? Would you inspire us to be faithful witnesses, both in private and in public, both in the church and in the voting booth? Faithful witnesses of your love, of your mercy, of your courage, and of your justice. God, mobilize an army of men and women who say yes to you and say yes to your kingdom and say yes to a more perfect union. I pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and through the work of your Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you for joining us, Gabriel. To hear more from Gabe, follow him and his wife, Jeanette, on Twitter at Pastor Salguero at Pastors Salguero, S-A-L-G-U-E-R-O, Pastors Salguero. You can also find the National Latino Evangelical Coalition at NALIC News, N-A-L-E-C, NALIC News, a very powerful, important coalition of uh, Latino, Latina evangelicals around this country. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you'd like, at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you, and in these difficult days, may God be with us.